I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest this week is Miranda Carter, whose books include Anthony Blunt, His Lives, and The Three Emperors on King George V, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and Tsar Nicholas II. She has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on the historical novelist Mary Reynolds. It's a review of a new Everyman edition of Reynolds' two Theseus novels, The King Must Die and The Bull from the Sea, which were first published in 1958 and 1962. Hello, Miranda, and thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure. So I've I've just described Mary Reynolds as a historical novelist. Is that right, do you think? Or in the case of these Theseus novels, at least, would something like mythical novelist be be more accurate? I suppose those two, yes, uh, you know, they are recreations of a myth, but uh, they are of the eight novels she wrote set in classical Greece. They are the two that are sort of, I suppose, technically not exactly historical, although the way that she conceives of Theseus, this mythological figure, is as if he is a historical figure. I think at the point at which she was writing, there were theories that perhaps the Theseus myth referred to a real Bronze Age king. And so she sort of set about trying to kind of reconstruct his, uh, well, his life through looking at archaeology, you know, theories of Bronze Age movements, ideas about belief systems, that sort of thing, as if he was a historical character. And it works incredibly well, I think. And all those things like, obviously, there might, there's no, there couldn't have been a minotaur, there couldn't have been a, a creature that was half man, half bull. But she sort of gets round those, she comes up with plausible historical explanations for for that sort of thing. Yes, that's one of the most sort of, I think, kind of intriguing and rather satisfying things about reading the books, although there are are many. I mean, they're rattling good reads as well, I have to say, along with lots of other things as well. But so, for example, the Minotaur is actually this sort of large-necked, muscle-bound, horrible, uh, illegitimate uh, stepson of uh, the king, Minos of of Crete, uh, who has hopes of usurping him, I think. And uh, so the sort of clash between him and Theseus is sort of set up right at the beginning um, in terms of sort of power dynamics. Obviously, Theseus ends up in Crete as essentially a slave, as a, uh, as a tribute from a vassal state, um, trying to find his way back home to Athens. Um, but there are all sorts of other sort of rather wonderful ways in which Renault gets around the sort of magical elements without completely a sense of loss of the, of the magic you do get a sense of the belief system. So Theseus really believes that he is both the son of King Aegeus of Athens and also the son of, of Poseidon. And she gives him this rather interesting ability to sense earthquakes before they happen. 
I mean, it's not really, it's, you could argue it's a curse rather than an ability because it, it weighs on him, him so horrifically and horribly. But there are other all, all sorts of sort of rather delightful things. So, for example, she brings in Chiron, who's the, I, I never know how to pronounce it. Is it Chiron or Chiron? Chiron, yeah. Who is the centaur who taught all the heroes. And she turns him from a centaur into the headman of a kind of tribal group who live in the hills in northern Greece. Uh, and they're famous for riding these hairy little ponies in which their legs sort of disappear. And she calls him Old Handy. And of course, when I read this book first, um, when I was in my teens in the 70s, you couldn't look up these things on the internet. But now, of course, two seconds will tell you that Chiron actually means sort of handy with your hands, you know. As in, as in chiropractor. As in chiropractor, exactly. So there are all these little kind of clever delights all sprinkled over the novels because she brought incredible scholarship and research to everything that she wrote about ancient Greece. And, you know, you can dig deeper and deeper and deeper into these things. And also you don't have to, you know, they could, they could pass you by if you want completely. Yeah, I mean, she even manages to get a, a reference to Stonehenge in there, doesn't she? Oh, yeah, like, yeah, this, yeah. The yeah. singer who's been to see the Hyperboreans in the exactly. terrible cold rainy place and I, actually the singer turns out i believe to be orpheus okay. you realize later right. I forgotten yeah that. yeah i mean so that question of how much i mean clearly you don't have to know or you can have as much not the more knowledge you have of, of the myths or the stories of the classical sources there's fun to be got from spotting those easter eggs as you know they're often called but you but clearly i mean the, the immense success of these books They've never been out of print, is that right? And they, I think you know, so, huge yeah. bestsellers yeah. that you don't have to know anything about the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur or any of those things to, to enjoy them. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's true of all her novels. But there is, um, you know, that's not to say they're just kind of, you know, excise fast-paced narratives. There, There is, I think, a lot of, of depth in her characterizations and uh, a lot of real feeling in the way that she... I think very deeply act, actually identifies with her characters, even though personally um, and publicly she liked to deny um, the kind of potential reference points between the past and the present and certainly herself and her characters. And I can completely understand that because at the time when she wrote these novels, she was living in South Africa. She's actually moved there and apartheid was coming in and she was living in this very, very hyper-politicised society. And she always fought off comparisons with South Africa, even though I think actually a lot of them were there in in her head. But actually, I think about it now and 50 years later, it's a good thing that we aren't constantly thinking, oh, you know, actually, this was an allegory of South Africa, because a lot of the points she makes about politics and power in societies resonate with all kinds of societies and resonate with now. So the books are more powerful for that, I think. Yeah, I I've occasionally wondered if she was looking at Table Mountain when Describing the Acropolis, as it were. But the, oh um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but we should maybe talk a bit about him, who who she was, because Mary Renault or Renault, um, she said, you know, spelled like the French car manufacturer, but pronounced to rhyme with the, the London suburb of, of Hainault as <laughs> a pseudonym. Yeah. <laughs> so who who was who was Mary Renault, or who was the woman behind the pseudonym? Well, she was born in 1905. She was born Edith Mary Challens. Her d- father was a doctor. Her mother was a housewife. And she adopted the pseudonym 
when she started publishing novels in the late 1930s, when she was actually a nurse. Um, she had gone to Oxford and then tried to make a, a go of it as a writer, um, ended up catching rheumatic fever, I think, um, uh, and had had to go back to her home, her parents, to convalesce. And she had a very, very exercised and difficult relationship with her parents and had to spend almost two years sitting at home. She basically got it because she'd been living on nothing except for sort of OXO stock cubes and water because she was so poor trying to trying to write. Uh, and then when she got over it, uh, she decided she'd become a nurse, which was a very gruelling three-year training. And she started when she was 28 but she thought it would give her stuff to write, which is slightly an odd way of thinking about nursing. She wanted to get, engage with the world. And so she was writing and practicing as a nurse and she didn't want her parents or her nursing superiors to know what she was writing. Um, and these first books, she published six um, before she started writing the classical novels in the 50s. And in fact, at that point, when she published those novels, she was already 51. So um, she. She, she was writing these novels in which uh, all relationships are rather unusual. There are a lot of references to homosexuality. Uh, all the relationships in all the novels are sort of slightly non-heteronormative, whether there are sort of weird age gaps or, you know, the dominant figure is the woman rather than the man, uh, whether, you know, people have already had same-sex relationships. There's one that's about two lesbians living on a barge. Um, they're all quite surprising. I think this all reaches back into her own past um, and, and indeed the fact that she was herself a lesbian, although she never called herself a lesbian. She she insisted that she was bisexual, although there's no never uh, no evidence that she ever had a relationship with a man. Um, but she had a very complicated, I think, relationship both with her parents and with her own gender. I think she came to sort of hate her mother. It was a very charged relationship. Her mother um, was uh, constantly asking her to sort of side with her in endless disagreements with the with her father. They, the marriage was a, pretty much a disaster. While at the same time, you know, she wanted her sympathy, and at the same time, she's incredibly crushing. She's always telling her she's incredibly unfeminine, and that she's got big feet and terrible teeth, and. Um, that, you know, if she reads too many books, men won't like her. And Renault conceived, I think, this intense frustration with being a girl and a woman and felt that boys obviously had a lot more fun and also a, a kind of habit of retreating and withdrawing and hiding to read. And this is something that you see, you know, repeated over and over again in the rest of her life. So the pseudonym Renault is a way of hiding behind a, a facade. And, and this happens again and again. I think, for example, when she left uh, to migrate to South Africa in the late 40s, uh, she's also withdrawing. She's sort of in flight from England and the life that she feels living in England imposes from her. And from South Africa, she's sort of endlessly fended off uh, attention and people asking her to come to England or go to America and tour or partly because it was sort of instinctive and partly, I think, because she felt very self-conscious about her relationship with her her partner um, of 40 years, who was another nurse. You know, she was very much a woman of her time. She she felt very uncomfortable with the world knowing about 
about her relationship. Uh, so there's sort of layers upon layers. But as I say, she didn't publish uh, the first Greek novel until she was 51. And so there had been this long and very, I think, painful at times and difficult apprenticeship to get there. And all the novels are essentially coming-of-age stories or, you know, um, Buildings Roman or what you'd call Kunstler Roman, um, where artists kind of grow into themselves and reach maturity. Yeah, portrait of the artist as a young as a young nurse. Yeah, so there are a couple of novels. There's one about um, an actor called The Mask of Apollo, and another one called The Praise Singer, which is essentially about a a poet uh, who who lives just at the moment at which the oral tradition is going and things are starting to be written down, which is a sort of marvellous historical moment. It's one of the things she was brilliant at, is sort of hinging onto these crucial friction moments. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of feeling and herself going into those stories, and particularly in uh, the three novels she wrote about Alexander the Great. I think her great masterpiece, personally, is Fire from Heaven, which is the first of the Alexandra novels, Alexander novels, which is about the childhood of Alexandra. And there's sort of nothing, we know very, very little about this, but she puts bones on this story in the most amazing way. It's a kind of extraordinary act of of imagination and catalysis created by an incredibly close reading of sources and um, archaeology and everything we know about uh, about the period sort of piled in. And then from this, she kind of makes these amazing emotional leaps. And I think she also brings in the sense of frustration and the desire, uh, the ambition that she felt as a woman growing up in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. I mean, she, she actually, she reviewed um, Robin Lane Fox's the Search for Alexander in the NRB in 1981. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, but no, I so... knew she was a great fan. I knew she was a great fan. That's yeah, well, they were fans of each other. <laughs> no, but it's quite. A bit, she, but she. It begins with that. Ever since his death in mid-career, Alexander has been projecting from his undiscovered tomb the powerful presence he exercised in life. To those around him, his magnetism was not mysterious. It was a natural phenomenon with which they lived. I mean, that's true of her as well. I mean, she's describing her own sense of him there. Her own she? fascination yeah. with him. Well, she has this thing where um, uh, when she was at university in 1926, when she was at Oxford, which was a very unsatisfactory experience, she was at St. Hugh's College, which had just basically lost all its staff because of a sort of scandal. So everybody had resigned and the only the rump left were were kind of incredibly inexperienced and mainly preoccupied with stopping the girls from going out or doing anything interesting. So it was like a rather boring, dreary extension of boarding school, I think. But one of the things she discovered was the Ashmolean Museum. And the head of the Ashmolean Museum was Sir Arthur Evans, who had rediscovered Knossos, but also done this rather evocative, although not necessarily very historically accurate, reconstruction of Knossos, the, the home of King Minos and the centre of the Cretan civilization of the sort of 14th to 1200 BC. Um, but the other thing he'd done was bring a whole load of casts of great Greek masterpieces to the Ashmolean Museum. So a number of them directly inspired future novels. One is a, a blonde ephebe, which is a, uh, a sort of 18-year-old, 20-to-20-year-old 20 20 Athenian youth, and that fed into her first classical novel, The Last of the Wine, which is about these young men uh, who fall in love uh, at the end of the um, 
war between Athens and Sparta, the Peloponnesian War, and the beginning of the tyranny in uh, in Athens. And uh, this also happens to be also the time when Socrates is wandering around and Plato is there. So it's a sort of marvellous uh, combination of of, um, of things happening. Um, and then there's uh, there was a Minoan relief, which again she saw a copy of and later saw the original in Crete, which I think inspired very definitely. She has this extraordinary visual visual uh, memory, uh, the Theseus novels. And then there's a, a bust of of Alexander. And she wrote like 30 years later when she was starting to write the, the um, Alexander novel that this image, this bust had haunted her for 30, 35 years. And she'd clearly sort of fallen in love with Alexander, you know, and and just looked and looked and looked at this at this face. Well, maybe that's when she says that even that, you know, as far as we know, she didn't have any sexual relationships with men. But if she was drawn to Alexander, then you know, she couldn't describe why, why she described herself as... You know. Oh, no, I think I think there's a definitely... There's a very interesting erotic charge in the... In, in, uh, in the Alexander books, there's no question. Uh, there are three books, although the third one it actually happens after he dies. And unlike, uh, I think, almost all her other classical novels, they are not told by Alexander herself. Usually the protagonist tells a story. They're told from the perspective mostly of other people. And the second one, The Persian Boy, which is also a terrific book, is actually told by a Persian eunuch, uh, Bagoas, who falls in love with him and becomes his his servant and also his lover. So there's always the sense of sort of outside looking in. And there are a whole bunch of people who who are totally in love and enslaved with him. And in a sense, they are all, to some extent, Mary Reynold. Um, and you do get this tremendous sense of sort of sexual charge, I think, off, off the book. The fact that she, there's no question she was absolutely in love with him. And with Theseus, who is almost a sort of precursor to Alexander, uh, that these two books are are told in the first person by Theseus, and and it's a marvelous voice. But he's, you know, he's uh, as she says, uh, I think, you know, heterosexual and very promiscuous, um, and so there's a lot of sort of sex in novels, a lot of 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 male sex all over the place which is kind of interesting from that point of view but theseus i mean he does have this sense of of being not as man, manly as he as he'd like to be that he's when he's young he's always comparing himself to the other boys around him and he's not quite as tall as they are and, and the one of the things that the mythical theseus is supposed to have done is it is to have invented wrestling right and in the and in the novel he has to invent these clever wrestling moves because he's fighting boys and young men who are all much bigger than him so he has to come up with clever ways to trip them up so he well this is one of her very again extremely brilliant roots into the novel and roots into theseus um she talks about in in um in an afterword she talks about how she was writing theseus as a sort of six foot six giant it just wasn't coming. It just seemed really wrong. And then she thought if he's and in fact, one of the ways that she she reconceives of the novel is that he doesn't go, obviously, to, to kill the Minotaur, but he goes uh, because Crete, which is the dominant state of the time demands uh, tribute from its vassal states, uh, young men and women, to go and be bull dancers in the bull rings of Crete. And we know from all these paintings in Colossus that they discovered that there is a sort of clearly a, 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 
an obsession in Crete with bulls and there does seem to have been a sort of bull fighting, bull dancing, jumping over the horns of bulls, spectator sport. And anybody who did that successfully was going to have to be very slight and lithe. And so she suddenly thinks, oh, so Theseus is not a six foot six giant. He has to be small and slight. And if he's small and slight, that would be why he'd be inventing wrestling, because wrestling is something in which you use your opponent's strength against them. And in fact, you only need wrestling if you're slighter and smaller. So her Theseus is rather cocky, and but also he's got a really a lot to prove. He's constantly trying to set himself against sort of bigger, larger boys, but also he has this tremendous sense of his own destiny and the fact that he's got to show everybody that he's sort of better and bigger and cleverer. And that is a marvellous route into a a personality who has a lot of growing and a lot of becoming to do. And and also a lot of, I mean, you're talking earlier about her complicated relationship with her mother and that one of the things that Theseus does before going to Crete, right, is he kind of goes around smashing matriarchal societies. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Near Athens. And I mean, in a way that's slightly... um, Without being too biographically re- reductive, you can see the appeal to her. But in a way, it's slightly there's something slightly troubling about it to a modern reader that he he turns up in Eleusis, where there, you know, it's called the king must die because every year a new king arrives and kills the old king as a sort of fertility rite and marries the queen, who's the one who's actually in power. And he sort of destroys that system, and then he makes it. Well, well he bring, brings the rule of the, men, the rule of men, yes. and also the rule of Athens. So it's this sort of patriarchal colonial behavior which oh no it's it's um i mean that's what's i think rather fascinating about it is that she can see she again the other one of the other things she does is she comes up with this friction point to set the novel in where there has been a a, a sort of matriarchal mother goddess worshipping society which has been swept aside or is being swept aside by a new immigrant group the the hellenes the the um, the sort of previous small dark people she calls them the shore people and the cretans also you get the sense are a sort of earlier um group have traditionally uh worshipped uh, the mother goddess, and also at some level, there has been, there have been these sort of matriarchal dominating societies. And Theseus is very much the, you know, dangerous young man who is sweeping all this aside. So he 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 performs a whole series of sort of, sort of killing the mother over and over again. So we start in Eleusis, as you say. He he um he gets he basically suborns the the queen and 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 stops the practice of of the king dying each year and becomes king himself and uh, kills her brother and diminishes her and then he goes on to Athens where uh, Medea as in Medea's uh, uh, Jason's Medea has has taken up with her his father Aegeus and you know he gets rid of her in two seconds and off she runs and then he goes to Crete and uh, there he he takes up with uh, the King Minos's daughter oh my goodness what's her name I can't remember Ariadne, no, Ariadne of course it is Ariadne uh, who is the uh, high priestess of uh, this mother snake goddess and then he carries her off when he manages to leave Crete uh, destroying that tradition and then deposit her on Naxos because, you know, she takes part in a 
monadic ritual where she tears a man apart and he's so disgusted by what he finds in her hand, but we're never told quite what it is. But, you know, I'm assuming it's a it's a penis, but goodness knows that she, you know, he simply can't have anything more to do with her. So he off he sails. And then 20 years later, he decides to marry her sister, Phaedra, because Athens has now taken over as the imperial power and is dominating Crete. And she ends up dying. He kills her because she falls in love with his son. I don't think I'm doing too many spoilers here. Do you think? I think the, the I think it's fine. <laughs> um, uh, she falls in love with his son Hippolytus, who doesn't return her her feelings, and then she accuses him of of um, raping her. And uh, Theseus, you know, sees him die in a in a sort of tsunami wave, and then goes back and kills her. So you know, over and over, he is sweeping over, but also sort of killing the matriarchal society over and over again. And you're right, she, we, we, we are cheering for him all the time. Although it seems to me, actually, one of the strengths of the novel is you don't have to completely cheer for him. You know, he's deeply, you know, he is a very confident male, but also you, um, you know, you, you can question and he gets his comeuppance. You know, there is this terrible sense of sort of decline, which I think makes the second book very, very interesting. And and as you say, there is this sort of almost sense when you think about what she's doing and the way that she feels about herself and her mother. Um, there's almost is there an element of sort of gender hatred in there, self hatred? It's it's complicated. I mean, she always said she wasn't a feminist, and yes, I mean she she's interesting in that point of view. She says she she won't support. Well, she she had a horror of group politics. I think this comes out of the fact that when she was about 25 and she first really properly discovers Greece, ancient Greece, which had fascinated her for sort of 25 years before uh, she ever started writing the novels, um, she she started reading Plato and she decided, you know, in 1926 that she was in fact a fifth century Athenian Platonist as opposed to a, a woman in 1926 with the uh, general strike happening. And she has a sort of very strong sense of, of um, I mean, she believes in individualism and and she's, I think, slightly put off group politics and the idea that, that you know, your identity, your sexual identity should be the only thing that you are, very much against where we are now in many respects. Um, and so things like, even though she she had been a tremendous advocate for gay rights, she sort of hated the idea of gay lib as a sort of group. And again, I think she hated the idea of sort of feminism as a, as a movement. But also she does say all these things about, uh, you know, men just have something that makes them better you know, in the end, you know, there'll never be a female Shakespeare because, you know, men have this sort of extra thing, you know, pizzazz, intelligence, whatever you call it. Is that's just not true? I know. Well, she was also, rather a good example of how that, I mean, herself, she was an example of that wasn't true because she certainly had that <laughs> pizzazz or whatever it was. Yeah. yeah, she really does. She has that extra quality. And, uh, but she admired writers like Sylvia Plath, she, Margaret Yersener, who wrote the great memoirs of Hadrian and other, the other great um, historical novel of the sort of 50s, 60s, and um, individual women, I think she admired a great deal. But uh, I think she's both a woman of her time, you know. I think if she'd been born, I don't know, 40 years later, I think she would have been very different. But And also she is very much a product of this... I think there's a lot of sort of shame in there, a lot of feelings of inadequacy and even sort of self-hatred um, come out of this 
very dark, uncomfortable childhood. Um, and one of the interesting things about all her stories is that she she never lets her her characters dwell on their trauma. They're always about overcoming it. You know, it's always about, uh, well, that happened to me, but actually that just makes me stronger. Um, so I, I'm sure that there were all sorts of uncomfortable things, you know, in her that that she sort of squished down, like like Homer Simpson, you know, squishing it down to the tiniest bit in your stomach, <laughs> not thinking about it. And they, you know, they leap out in ways that actually make the novels more interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a bit you quote her saying that people in the past were not just like us. To pretend so is an evasion and a betrayal, turning our back on them so as to be easy among familiar things. And I mean, presumably that's true you know, of the more recent past as well. And when we think about Mary Reynolds, we need to bear that in mind. So, oh, yes, I think that's absolutely right. Also, I think it is true of the past. I think, you know, I myself have, have written um, not nearly as good historical thrillers, it has to be said. And there is a sort of temptation to see uh, parallels in the present all the time. But actually, uh, you have to be very careful about acknowledging context. Um, and I think she felt that this was a sort of cheapening, that people were always looking for, you know, comfortable uh, things that didn't make them feel too uncomfortable. And the fact is Theseus, for example, you know, Theseus kills people all the time. Alexander glorifies war. You know, that's what he, he wants to conquer and conquer and conquer. And also he's fascinated by seeing the world. But, you know, conquering and fighting are absolutely sort of intrinsic to the way that he conceives of himself. And she never tries to soften that. She sees him as a hero. She feels that he, he has this tremendous charisma, but she doesn't sort of soften that for the reader. Uh, and the reader can take him any way they like. Um, she does add, actually add in, in one of the afterwards to the uh, Alexander books that well, she says that nobody, nobody philosophically starts questioning war as a as a, a human activity until a hundred years after Alexander had died. So you know, she does have a tremendous sense of 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 what should fit where, where, and how we shouldn't soft pedal or soft coat uh, the brutalities of the past. Yeah, and I mean, she had lived through. Two world wars. Oh yeah, I mean, herself as well. I mean, first of all, as a child, but in the, in the she was in the Second World War. She's a nurse. She is uh, working in a in a army hospital, setting bone. I mean, dealing with really really severe injuries, bone injuries, uh, some some brain injuries. You know, she saw men who'd come back broken from the war for years and years and years. And I think. One of the interesting things about her is that she, she clearly changes and she grows. And she was deeply, in many respects, naive and very, very unpolitically engaged before World War II. I think she said the most sort of politicised moment she had pre-war was deeply identifying with Edward VIII when he fell in love with Wallace Simpson and had to. And you just think, oh, my God. God, I mean, really get a life. But she thought he was tremendously romantic. That's another side of her. You know, she actually has this tremendous desire for sort of, you know, she's looking for sort of romantic figures. But the war definitely changes her and South Africa definitely changes her. And so, for example, um, you know, she's quite interesting later on, on the whole subject of race and 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 um, what happened in Germany um, during the war. But interestingly, she talks about 
uh, about, I suppose you could call it, I mean, the Holocaust as a sort of total idea of what of, of German attitudes to another race, to the Jews, as as a sort of as individual moral choices that are about, you know, they're despicable, but they're about emotional, intellectual laziness. I mean, only a sort of Platonist would put it like that, but she feels it very, very deeply that it's a, you know, it's a terrible, it's a terrible act of of remission and and intellectual failure and failure in every sort of human sense by each and every person, which is a, a sort of unusual way of articulating it. But it very much fits in with her sense of herself as sort of interested in sort of individual behaviour through her study of Plato. Uh, but it, yeah, I think that's with her all the time. And then later, when she's in South Africa, she I mean, they turned up in 1948, uh, you know, thinking... How lovely to go somewhere warm after being poor in in and and cold in England for you know the, all my life. Um, and two weeks after they arrived, um, there's a general election which the um, nationalist government came in, and that is the basically the pathway to apartheid. And they had no idea, no idea what they were all going into. For, for, for Mary Reynolds, um, South Africa was, you know, Ryder Haggard, basically. It was adventure stories and, and warm weather. And she is really forced by what happens in apartheid to do something that I think did not come naturally to her at all and get politically engaged. So she marched against the Sharpeville massacres. She she joined various organisations like Black Sash, which were slightly kind of, she turned out to be rather sort of milk and water organisations weren't really willing to get their hands dirty. Um, and in the end, she found being part of a political group just too annoying. But, you know, there's no doubt that she she thinks it's, a, it's an awful thing. And in fact, the first classical novel, The Last of the Wine, she definitely has South Africa and the road to apartheid and tyranny on her mind when she writes it. But she 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 won't say that publicly. I think she feels it sort of diminishes the force of the novel. Yeah, well, it's, it's there. It's there in the novel if people. Want yeah, to choose read it to. But also, yeah. there's a perversity about her. She doesn't want people to kind of pin her down. She doesn't want to be pinned down. She doesn't want to, you know, feel that uh, there are sort of personal and, and political reference points so people could kind of say, oh, this is this, just in the same way that she doesn't want to be pinned down herself. She doesn't want to, people to say, you know, that's a lesbian or. You know, she's this, she's that. She's constantly uh, trying to uh, elude definition and being pinned down at all. One book that we haven't talked about yet is The Charioteer, which was published in 1953 and about a Second World War soldier coming to terms with his homosexuality or trying to. Well, actually, that is, a, that is I mean, this is something we haven't also talked about, is really she is a proper trailblazer as a, write, a British writer about homosexuality. The Charioteer, which is, as you say, about a World War II soldier, young World War II soldier who is gay, although she hated the word gay, um, and is trying to work out how to live sort of honestly as a gay man in a society where it's illegal what kind of life he's going to lead is an extraordinarily explicit i mean i think certainly the most explicit novel about homosexuality published in in britain i mean certainly up to that point um and it's often mentioned in the same breath as uh, james 
uh, with Giovanni's room and uh, the uh, pillar and the, oh, I can't remember the name of the Gore Vidal novel, uh, but, you know, it's a trailblazing novel and it is a very vivid portrait of, 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 of gay life in the 40s and it doesn't pull its punches really at all. Although there are these moments where um, somebody comes in for a snog and you're not entirely sure what has happened. But when you read it over a few things, you think, oh, right, they kissed. Gotcha. Uh, so there is a tiny little bit of that. But uh, And then really almost all the classical novels have uh, gay relationships in them. And so she was a, a, a tremendous trailblazer writing about, well, always really male sexual relationships. This this is the connection really with the earlier, less successful novels set in contemporary uh, Britain. Um, these, these novels in which there are often sort of gay relationships or slightly unusual, as I said, non-heteronormative relationships. Um, and now, of course, it's hard, you know, hard to think of, of those sorts of books as, as trailblazing. I, I, or rather, you know, they, it's not the kind of big thing about them. But then when they first came out, she received, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of letters from gay men writing to her saying, you know, you've changed my life or um, I'm gay. Um, and I'm so grateful to see this portrait of homosexuality in a world where it isn't, in, in her Greek novels, where it isn't um, uh, illegal and, you know, it can be a positive thing. And, and, you know, letters and letters and letters and letters. So that's a sort of another side of that. But also I, I feel that by and large, though, again, the portrayal of those relationships hasn't dated. Although I do find The Charioteer, which is the last of her contemporary novels, a little bit baggy and a bit declamatory. And she is quite sort of, she's quite judgmental about gay relationships. So, you know, there is this portrait of, of this group of gay men in Bristol who who are sort of living under the radar and having parties and getting pissed and having their hearts broken. And uh, there's quite a lot of campery. And it's clear that she sort of disapproves of this. She thinks it's all rather sort of disgusting, you know, even though actually her closest friends in South Africa, which was where really she gathered the material for the charity, effort, um, were, were all gay men. Uh, so again, you know, all sorts of ambivalences. And I think, again, very much of her time yeah uh, the the city and the pillar i think is the city and the pillar yes of course yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean that i mean the charity there are there is that in um in the king must die when when theseus he goes going into battle against the bandits on the isthmus of corinth i think that's right and with the um and the, the so the brother who he the brother of the queen who he kills has sabotaged his chariot which again is a you know it's, it's by putting a wax axle pin in which I think is taken from another. I mean, there's the I can't remember who it was, but there's a race. The Parson on Freeze has a has a, a story of someone else's chariot race for that. But his riding the chariot with him, there are these two. You know, they're, they're hardly in the novel at all, but it, they're a, no, no, but they are partner. Yeah, describing yeah, yeah. them as a gay couple doesn't sound quite right. But there are these these, <laughs> but these two young men who have this special relationship, and it seems and that sort of as a height of a sort of nobility and. There's something in that relationship which certainly Theseus doesn't seem to have with any of the women that he. Yeah. Yes, that they fight for each other. In fact, they're the, are they not the couple he goes to um, Crete with originally, um, and they they help to open up the 
the doors because they dress up as women and smuggle themselves into. They are a couple, male couple. Well, I think those are different. Oh, ones is that different? Certainly, one of one of the one of the ones one of the ones in the chariot is killed, and so his partner is sort of incredibly angry. Sort of is. God, I'm, I'm terrible memory, but here I, I, I should be knowing everything. I can't remember any of the names. <laughs> That's the um, but that question, yeah, the one sort of in dis- disguised as. I mean, you compare, you make some quite fun comparisons um, in the piece between these novels. I mean, you make a comparison with the computer game Assassin's Creed. Yes. And also with the, uh, with the Hunger Games novels, films. And clearly they are, I mean, the, the, the influence of them has been not only on historical fiction, but also on, I mean, that, the, the, the choosing by lot of yes. the, the young yes. people from Athens who are going to be taken to Crete is so like that scene in the Hunger Games, the choosing scene in the Hunger Games. It is. really is, and you know they're going off to to do to to to, to uh, uh, play this game in the in the arenas of Crete, and nobody lasts long. Nobody lasts long. You know the whole point is it's incredibly dangerous, and you you be, you become incredibly successful, but you um, uh, you know your 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 fire burns very briefly because eventually you will be impaled on the horns of a of a you know you'll get too slow and and when Theseus arrives and his first kind of journey in into leadership is creating his group from Athens and turning them into this kind of you know amazingly you know brilliant team you know everybody else laughing like 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 gladiator another movie like gladiator <laughs> exactly um is is that uh, you know you last about if you're lucky you know the most you last is sort of 9 months um so yeah i mean absolutely that that sort of you know there's definitely that hunger games thing and then i felt the assassins creed thing is you know the the first couple recreate these italian Renaissance City is absolutely marvellously the, the game Assassin's Creed. And I, I never played computer games, but when my sons had, had it, I would just come and look at the... Um, at the uh, you know the uh, the assassin climbing over the roofs of Rome and Florence, Florence just extraordinary. Um, uh, and, you know, they'd put together these two cities from, you know paintings, maps, um, and uh, sort of dozens of tiny little details to produce this absolutely astonishing image of these two Renaissance cities. And I feel that's the same way that Renault will build uh, a view or um, a, an image in uh, uh, in her novels. So, for example, there's this astonishing um, description at the beginning of The Last of the Wine, the novel that's set in in uh, in Athens at the end of the Peloponnesian War uh, of 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 the protagonist's house and what you could see from it and you know that she has built it up from reading archaeological reports tramping around Athens um, uh, just just uh, just tiny little detail picked up here and here and here and here until she's kind of put together out of you know a dozen or more fragments like rebuilding a, a classical vase uh, a whole sort of 360 degree view of the house and what you could see from it and she does that over and over again it's it's sort of painstaking but it's but the the result is is anything but sort of heavy or difficult it's it's seamless you're being handed these vivid vivid images of this ancient world it's like she's sort of repainting it 
and she does that with everything isn't it with the characterization and the relationships it's not only the i mean the the world building is it as it's known in yeah i mean that that word that word world building which of course didn't exist when she was writing the novels that's exactly what she does i mean world building it might one of my sons is sort of obsessive fantasy enthusiast and dungeons and dragons player and all that i mean world building is sort of said about six times a day in our house and uh you know that's that's exactly what she did she's an absolutely astonishing world builder and she does that. And at the same time, I think that that refusal to kind of think herself into the present, that, that refusal to kind of have those contemporary reference points is one of the things that keeps the novel so fresh. I mean, there is, I, I, mean, I feel that they haven't dated. I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so interesting. About them. I keep thinking about what it was, what it is that, that makes that the case. And I think it's, it is that she kind of drops those contemporary reference points. She's always thinking about, about about her past about this about this this past that she's immersing herself in and not thinking about it through trying very hard not to think about it through a sort of prism of 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 the present and to a tremendous extent it seems to me it, it it succeeds i mean you think about what was being what was coming out at the same time as as uh the last of the wine which i think is published in 56 uh it's I don't know things like I don't know in England things like Lucky Jim and Anthony Pole and you know they're all great but you do have a tremendous sense of the period and here you do feel you're diving into the past and it I feel it could have been written yesterday except possibly possibly that that sense in which she um you know those those uh, views of, of of male marvelousness which perhaps now wouldn't go over too well but i think you know you can take that on board it's all part of the complexity and the interest and the uh the richness of it i mean they are very rich books i think miranda carter thank you very much pleasure you can read Miranda's piece on Mary Reynolds in the current issue of the LRB along with Barbara Newman on women in the crusades and Torrell Moy on Marguerite Duras if you have any thoughts about this episode of the LRB podcast or any other that you'd like to share, then please email us at podcasts at lrb.co.uk or just leave us a five-star review. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>